You ever pause when you're reading the newspaper and say to yourself or whoever might be listening, what is wrong with people? What is wrong with our society? What is wrong with this world? Well, you know the answer. Because what is wrong? What is man's biggest problem? Well, it's sin. See, that was the safe answer always in Sunday school. That answered 40% of your Sunday school teacher's questions. Sin. But what is sin? What is sin? Well, you know, sin in its simplest definition is selfishness. In the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.15, it's living for yourself. It's putting me first and doing my thing my way. The first sin ever committed was by Lucifer, and this is what he said to himself in Isaiah 14, 14. I will make myself like the Most High. And when he tempted Eve in the garden, listen to what he said in Genesis 3, 5. You will be like God. You see, sin is usurping the throne of God and putting myself in the center of the universe. And that's a big problem because I was never meant to be there. That's what's wrong with man. He is out of place. He is on the throne instead of on his knees. So the better question is not what's wrong with man. The better question is what is the solution to that problem? What is the answer to that dilemma? Some people say it's self-realization. That's the popular message of modern psychology. In fact, when you go into a bookstore today, there's an entire section of self-help books. And the message is, find yourself, accept yourself, be yourself, express yourself, love yourself. And the goal, of course, is to improve your self-esteem. But there's a fundamental flaw to that answer because what am I doing when I focus on myself and accept myself and exalt myself? I am compounding the problem. I am pushing myself on the center stage. I am putting myself first. I am putting myself in the center of the universe. And that is no answer. I like the fellow who after years of following all the self-help books came to this conclusion. He said, I'm a selfaholic. I'm addicted to myself. Someone once asked the head of a mental institution, he said, I suppose these people in here are beside themselves. And he said, oh no, you'd be surprised. Most of these people are very much themselves. They don't think about anything but themselves. In fact, they are pickled in themselves. Self-realization is not the answer. It just compounds the problem. In fact, if you're into self-help and self-acceptance and self-promotion and self-expression and self-worth and self-esteem, you know what you're really doing? You are preparing yourself for hell. Because the most used word in hell is I. I. 
Others suggest the answer is self-revitalization. And their message is, you're fine. You just live in a hectic society. And so what you need is some time to recharge. You need a diversion. You just need a change of scenery. You see, the problem is not really you. The problem is this crazy society that you live in. And what are the negative side effects of living in this hectic society? Well, most people would point to two prominent ones. Loneliness and stress. Now, we say that we're lonely because we're moving so fast. Everybody's going somewhere very fast, and so we never have time to sit down and talk. And so we fly by each other, and all we have time to do is wave. And so we say that's the reason we're lonely. We live in this hectic society. And then we say that we are stressed out because there's too much to do and too little time. So what do we do? We go faster. And so the proposed answer to all of that is some self-revitalization. Now, I'm going to date myself with this illustration. But back in 1965, Petula Clark sang a hit song called Downtown. And it went like this. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. When you've got worries, all the noise and the hurry seems to help, I know, downtown. Just listen to the music of the traffic in the city. Linger on the sidewalks where the neon signs are pretty. How can you lose? The lights are much brighter there. You can forget all your troubles, forget all your cares, and go downtown. Things will be great when you're downtown. No finer place for sure, downtown. Everything's waiting for you, downtown. What is she saying? The cure to individual loneliness and worry is concentrated loneliness and worries. Go downtown where the rat race is at its maddest pace and you'll feel better. Now, what are the people downtown saying? We need to get a home in the country to get some self-revitalization. We need to escape from all this hecticness. But you know, the problem is, you can't escape yourself. Because wherever you go, you're going to take the problem. I like what Lily Tomlin said about the rat race. She said, the problem is, even if you win, you're still a rat. Remember the fellow in the New Testament named Legion? He was out in the country, living among the tombs. Luke 8, 27 adds an interesting detail about him. It says, he was a man from the city. He was a man from the city, and he was out in the country, but the solitude hadn't helped him too much because he took his city demons with him. You see, the answer to man's problem is not location, location, location. 
In fact, those symptoms that we tend to blame on the hectic society, they actually don't come from the hectic society at all. They are compounded by this hectic society, but they come from within each of us. They come from the fact that the self is out of place. You see, I am inherently lonely because I have rebelled against God. And as long as that is the case, man will live his life in isolation from God. The, the Bible calls that spiritual death. And death means separation. There is no lonelier place than to be separated from God. You've heard it said, it's lonely at the top. Well, that's especially true if you're not supposed to be there. We have taken God off the throne and we are in a place we were never intended to be. And so man is inherently lonely. And secondly, man is inherently stressed out. Why? Because Satan has duped me into thinking that I need to take control of the universe. And guess what? I can't run the universe. I can't even balance my checkbook. Talk about stressed out. We take over the universe and try to control it on our own. And we bring that stress on ourselves because we're in a position we were never intended to be in. And so the answer is not to get away because I can never get away from me. Others say the answer is self-religionization. I made up that word. They don't really say it because you stumble over it. They say, well, I'll get religion. I'll tidy myself up. I'll clean up my act. I'll make myself pious. And we don't have to look very far to see the inadequacy of that kind of position. We see it in the Pharisees, the most religious people in the first century. Here's what Jesus says about them in Matthew 23, 25. You can clean up the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside, you are full of robbery and self-indulgence. See, they had cleaned up the outside, but they hadn't touched the self-centeredness that was their very nature. But let's bring it closer to home than that. You know, it's also illustrated by the disciples, the ones who had left everything to follow Jesus. And I want you just for a moment to look at Luke chapter 9 with me. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 20, Peter makes his great confession about Jesus. Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ of God. Now this is a high point for Peter. He had just made the most profound theological statement of his day. Peter had never sounded more religious in his life. He had a great doctrinal statement. You are the Christ of God. Now you might expect from this pivotal point in the lives of the disciples that they would change and become different people. Surely now that they know who Jesus is, we're going to see their lives transformed. Do you know what happens right after this? In verse 40, they can't cast out a demon from a little boy. Right after the great doctrinal statement, after this, this great creed that they've established, they don't have any spiritual power. Someone has said the little boy had a better case of demon possession than they had of God possession. 
In verse 46, they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. We see individual clashing with individual. And what's the conflict? Who is going to get to be at the center of the universe? In verse 49, they tried to stop someone else who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. And here we see their group clashing with another group because they weren't the right denomination. In verse 54, some Samaritans wouldn't receive them into their village, so James and John stepped forward and said, Jesus, do you want us to command fire to come down out of heaven and consume them? What's this? Race clashing with race. And then in the last part of the chapter, in verses 57 to 62, we see three fellows who wanted to follow Jesus, but they weren't willing to give up their own comfort, their own inheritance, and their own relationships. And here were individuals clashing with themselves, not able to do what they really wanted to do. And so immediately after Peter's great confession, we see spiritual impotence and all kinds of relational disharmony. Now, what was the problem? Well, you know, when, G when Peter made his great confession, Jesus immediately added a commentary in verse 22 because he wanted the disciples to understand what kind of Messiah he would be. And he says it would be the kind of Messiah who would be rejected and suffer and die and then rise again. And Luke doesn't record it for us, but Matthew does in chapter 16. He tells us that Peter's reaction was to take Jesus aside and rebuke him. Why? Because Peter didn't want to hear anything about the cross. You see, when he called Jesus the Messiah, he was thinking about a Messiah who would take the throne of Rome by force. He expected him to be a self-assertive Messiah. And so he rebuked all this talk about suffering and death. And you remember what Jesus said to him? Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Now, why did he call him Satan? Well, because that's Satan's strategy. Exalt yourself. Peter had fallen into that pattern, and all the rest of us have fallen into that pattern because that's what sin brings into our life. And then Jesus goes on to say, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Get behind me, Satan, but it's not just Satan who does this. It's the very mind of man. What is the mind of man? Self-assertion. What is the mind of God? Self-sacrifice. Man thinks, save your life. God thinks, lose your life. And then Jesus applies this to anyone who would follow Him in Luke 9, 23 and 24. It says, And He was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake, he is the one who will save it. God's strategy is you lose your life to find it. But this obviously went right over the heads of the disciples as we see by their reaction in the rest of the chapter. You see, they had left everything behind except one thing, themselves. 
So how do we deal with the problem of sin? How do we deal with self in the sinner? Well, it can't be done through self-realization or self-revitalization or self-religionization. So what's the answer? Well, Jesus just gave it to us in Luke 9, 23 and 24. It's self-renunciation. You see, you have to lose your life. Now, how do you do that? How do you lose your life? Well, the truth is, you don't do it. In fact, you can't do it. But God does it for you. And if you come back to Romans chapter 6, Paul has been telling us that that's exactly what happens through the Gospel. When you got saved, the emphasis was probably on the fact that Jesus came into you. But the fact is that when you got saved, you also came into Jesus. And the Bible refers to that as being in Christ. That phrase is used by Paul alone 164 times in the New Testament. You as a Christian are inseparably linked to Christ. In fact, that's what your baptism symbolized. When you were baptized, you were proclaiming, I am identified with Christ. When He died, I died. When He was buried, I was buried. When He rose, I rose. You see, the Christian life begins with a death, and it's yours. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 6, Paul says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him. The old you died. The you that sinned in Adam. The you that wanted to be like God. The you that wanted to be at the center of the universe died. You see, that's the only answer to man's biggest problem. You can't repair yourself. You can't improve yourself. You cannot reinvent yourself. You've got to die. And that can only happen one place, at the cross. And if you are a believer, Paul is telling you that it has happened. Our old man has been crucified once and forever, and he can never be uncrucified. But that doesn't mean your problem with sin is over. Because if you're honest, you still struggle with selfishness. And you still battle old thoughts and old patterns and old habits. And there are still times when you crawl up on the throne and take over your universe. So what do I still need to do? Well, Paul gives us the outline in Romans chapter 6. He tells us in verse 6, we need to know. Know that you're dead to sin and alive to God. Secondly, he tells us in verse 11 that we need to consider. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. And then the third step, he tells us in verse 13, you need to present. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. You need to know that you're dead and alive. You need to consider that you're dead and alive. And you need to present yourself to God as those who are both dead and now alive. That word consider is an accounting term. It means to put to your account. In fact, it's a word that was used 11 times in Romans chapter 4 where Paul was telling us that God has taken Jesus' righteousness and put it in your account. Now, it wouldn't do me a whole lot of good to take my checkbook and write in there a deposit of $1,000 if there was not an actual deposit made. You see, that would be pretending 
And Paul is not saying here, I want you to pretend that you're dead and pretend that you're alive. He's saying, I want you to know that it's that. That's why the order is so important. He spends these first verses of chapter 6 saying, I want you to know this is true. I want you to know this is true. I want you to know this is true. It's a reality. You have died with Christ. You are alive to God. And then after all that, he says, now I want you to put this truth into your account. I want you to accept it. I want you to apply it. I want you to believe it. Most of us as Americans are activists. So when we get to verse 11, we say, finally, we've got something we can sink our teeth into. Now we've got something we can do. Now we've got an exhortation to follow. But we've got to be careful there because if you skim over the first verses of chapter 6 and jump down to verse 11, you're going to have a problem because you first need to know who you are before you start to act like who you are. And if you skim over the first part of chapter 6, you'll never grasp verse 11. Watchman Nee tried that until he finally got the order right. He tells us about it in his classic book, The Normal Christian Life. Listen to what he says. For years after my conversion, I had been taught to reckon. I reckoned from 1920 until 1927. The more I reckoned that I was dead to sin, the more alive I clearly was. I simply could not believe myself dead and I could not produce the death. Whenever I sought help from others, I was told to read Romans 6.11. And the more I read Romans 6.11 and tried to reckon, the further away death was, I could not get at it. I fully appreciate the teaching that I must reckon, but I could not make out why nothing resulted from it. I have to confess that for months I was troubled. I said to the Lord, if this is not clear, if I cannot be brought to see this which is so fundamental, I will cease to do anything. I will not preach anymore. I will not go out to serve anymore. I want first of all to get thoroughly clear here. For months I was seeking and at times I fasted, but nothing came through. And then I remember one morning. That morning was a real morning and one I can never forget. I was upstairs sitting at my desk reading the Word and praying, and I said, Lord, open my eyes. And then in a flash, I saw it. I saw my oneness with Christ. I saw that I was in Him, and that when He died, I died. I saw that the question of my death was a matter of the past and not of the future, and that I was just as truly dead as He was because I was in Him when He died. The whole thing had dawned upon me. I was carried away with such joy at this great discovery that I jumped from my chair and cried, Praise the Lord, I'm dead. I ran downstairs and met one of the brothers helping in the kitchen, and I laid hold of him. Brother, I said, Do you know that I have died? I must admit he looked puzzled. What do you mean, he said. So I went on, do you not know that Christ has died? Don't you know that I died with him? Don't you know that my death is no less truly a fact than his? Oh, it was so real to me. I longed to go through the streets of Shanghai shouting the news of my discovery. From that day to this, I have never for one moment doubted the finality of that word. I have been crucified with Christ. That's what it means to consider yourself to be dead to sin. You say, well, why was this guy so excited about being dead? 
Well, the answer is in the second half of verse 11. He says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, we never live until we've gone to our own funeral. And then we come back singing. Because what follows death with Christ is resurrection life in Christ. Now let's take a moment this morning. We're not going past this verse, so relax. When I start going on tangents, everybody gets nervous. So, so I'm going to get you to relax. We're finished. But let's take a moment and think about what this new life is like. And I want to take you to another verse. Go to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Familiar verse. Many of you have memorized this verse. But I want to point out some things in it. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. Now, there are a lot of things in that verse. I want to pick out three things. I want to highlight them. Number one, what's this life like? It's a shared life. I want you to notice something. Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And then he says, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live. So he says, it's not me, it's Christ. And then he says, it is me. So it's a shared life. In fact, as you read this verse, it's hard to tell where you end and where Christ begins. You see, it's Christ's life in me, and so it's His interests and His goals and His love and His power being lived out through my life. That's an exciting thing. And you can see that in your life if you're a believer. Because the, before the Bible meant nothing to us, now the Word of God is intensely alive. I open the Word of God and I find God speaking to me. Before, we had no interest in God's people. I mean, you, before you were a Christian, you looked at God's people and they were like foreigners. Now, they're your best friends. Before, going to church was boring. Now, the preacher's still boring. But our worship times are the highlight of our week. How do you explain that? Christ lives in me. See, it's a shared life. Secondly, it's a practical life. He's not just talking about something on the spiritual realm. He's not just talking about some life that's pie in the sky by and by. Paul says, the life which I now live in the flesh. I like that. What is the flesh? That's where we have all our problems. That's where the battlefield is. That's where our greatest struggles are in the flesh. And he says, Christ lives in me and it's now a life that I live out in the flesh. Right in the hottest part of the battle, Christ is demonstrated in my life. It's practical. And then thirdly, it's a sacrificial life because Paul says, I live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Christ is not only the power of my life in that He's living through me. He is the pattern of my life. He is the one I follow 
in living it out. And what is that pattern? Is it self-assertion? No. It's self-sacrifice. He gave Himself for me. You see, this new life is the very opposite of our old life. The old life was what? Self-centered. This new life is self-sacrificing. Look at one other verse, 2 Corinthians 5.15. 2 Corinthians 5.15. Speaking of Christ, it says, He died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Why did Jesus die? Not just to save us from hell. Not just to save us from our sins. Jesus died to save us from ourselves. Jesus died to save us from living self-centered lives. You say, well, Dan, you know, as I sit here today, and think about my life, I would describe it as self-centered. It used to be self-sacrificing when I first got saved, but that seems a long way away. How do I get back there? How do I get back to that kind of life being lived out through me? Look at Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. This is Paul speaking. Right after saying, talking about justification by faith and how none of his works contributed to that, that his salvation was totally by God's grace through faith. He says in verse 10, expressing the passion and goal of his life, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Here's Paul. The guy we all model ourselves after, and he says, my ambition in life is that I may know him. You say, well, Paul, you already know him. Yeah, but his goal was that I may know him more intimately. And what else? That I may know the power of his resurrection. Now, how do you get to know the power of his resurrection? Well, he tells us in this verse. He says, it's by being conformed to his death. If you want to know the power of his resurrection... You first have to be conformed to his death. What's that mean? Well, resurrection power only happens one place, and that's in a cemetery. Doesn't happen anywhere. Resurrection power happens in a cemetery. So you're not going to experience resurrection life until you get back in your grave. You have been crucified with Christ, and some of us are acting like we haven't. And we're saying, I want God's resurrection power in my life. Well, you need to get back in your grave. You need to, Romans 6.11, consider yourself to be dead to sin, because you are. And consider yourself to be alive to God, because you are. See, that's the paradox. The surrender that seems downward is actually a surrender upward. You are never so much your own than when you are most His. It's only through death that we really live. 
We live a shared life where my selfish interests are dissolved into the selfless interests of Christ. We live a practical life lived out in the very battlefield of my flesh. And we live a sacrificial life. Rather than exalting self, I'm able to lay down my life for others. Let me close with one last verse. Revelation 7.17. Because in closing, you know who is at the center of the universe? You know who is at the center of the universe? Look at Revelation chapter 7 and verse 17. It says, For the Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of the water of life and God shall wipe every tear from their eyes. Self-sacrifice was not just the way Jesus walked this earth. It's the very heart and mind of God. And so who is at the center of of the throne of the universe and who will be at the center of the throne of the universe forever is the Lamb. And he tells us earlier in Revelation 5-6, it's a Lamb standing as if slain. You see, self-sacrifice is at the center of the throne of the universe because that's the way God is. And He's asking you and I to join Him in that life and the only way to get there is to consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. I'm going to ask the praise team to come and lead us in a closing chorus. This is not really an invitation, although if God has spoken to you and you want to respond, you may come forward and we'll deal with whatever issue is on your heart. But I'm just going to ask you to stand and sing this as a closing prayer as you allow the Lord to take, your, take you and mold you and use you and fill you as you put your life into His hands this morning.